Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we hear about a lawsuit that is challenging the constitutionality of Colorado's ban on American Indian mascots. And so what's really missing in the debate and the discussion is just the harms that arise from the use of these images. And we explore recent changes to an opioid anti-stigma campaign in Colorado, Lift the Label. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. More than 100,000 Americans died of drug overdoses from April 2020 to the same time in 2021. That's the most ever recorded over a 12-month period, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And Colorado has not been immune. The state hit its own record last year, including 956 people who lost their lives to opioids like prescription pain pills, heroin, and fentanyl. The state launched an anti-stigma campaign in 2018 called Lift the Label, encouraging those abusing opioids to seek treatment, but it was primarily reaching one group. As KUNC's Stephanie Daniel reports, it's been refocused to reach a more diverse audience. And just a note, this story contains mention of drug use and addiction. Keith Hayes was 12 years old when he first tried marijuana. Alcohol soon followed, and before he knew it, he was hooked on opiates. Then in my 20s, I got prescribed some, uh, I think some Vicodin or some Percocets for a toothache or something. And um, I liked how it made me feel. He started taking other people's prescription medications and bought pills on the street. His addiction lasted for over a decade. As my life continued to spiral and spiral out of control, I found myself in jails and prisons, uh, institutions, hospitals, until I was hopeless. Then Hayes says he was finally sick and tired of being sick and tired. His probation officer told him, if you're serious about getting sober, you should go to a treatment facility. But it was hard to find a place. Me and my mom, we looked all over trying to find me treatment. I didn't have any insurance at the time, so I didn't have any resources. Ultimately, he got into a free program at the Salvation Army and has been in recovery ever since. But the barriers to finding treatment went beyond knowing where to look. Black people don't get into recovery like that. Right. Like, hey, it's it's ingrained in our community and the fabric that if you need help, you need to figure it out for yourself. Right. It also goes back to the Hey, you're a man. Right. And men got to take care of things on your own and you don't ask people for help and you got to figure it out. The stigma around admitting he had a problem and needed help kept him sick for a long time. But now he's sharing his story. They were heartbroken. You never know what your family is going through when you're out there in the streets and they feel just as hopeless as you feel in active addiction. That's from a video titled Supporting a Loved One, featuring Hayes and three others in recovery. It's one of several new ads from Lift the Label, the state's opioid anti-stigma campaign. It is important that this campaign reach a more diverse audience. Liz Owens works for the state's Office of Behavioral Health and co-created Lift the Label. She says the revamped ads feature people from different genders, religions, races, and ethnicities. Because we know that so many people in our state are not able to access treatment, and that in particular, um, for communities of color, for LGBTQ plus Coloradans, they face even more barriers to accessing treatment to begin with. According to state data, drug overdose deaths in 2020 were the highest among Black, American Indian, and Alaska Native people and men. 
Lift the Label launched in 2018. The website includes information from defining opioid addiction to treatment resources and how to support a loved one who's struggling. But Owen says the most impactful part of the public awareness campaign are the personal stories. The power of Lift the Label is really authentic storytelling. So everybody in the campaign is from Colorado and has a story to share, whether it's their own story of recovery, their story of potentially losing a loved one, how stigma impacted their um, ability to get treatment, their ability to seek recovery. After the first year, Owens and her team looked at data on digital advertising and found 92 percent of impressions were reaching white people. Which, of course, you know, just contributes to stigma, to access just compounds all the issues. To target a more diverse audience, the team began a multi-year equity research and campaign improvement process. It started with a literature review and looking at existing data. Then they conducted focus groups and interviews with people from diverse communities and worked with a researcher at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus who specializes in structural stigma. They made changes based on what they learned, including misinformation about medications for opioid use disorder. That's too expensive. That's not for me. That's replacing one drug with another. Even though there's all this data about it being a very effective form of treatment, like the myth, the stigma, it's all extremely pervasive. The 2021 Colorado Health Access Survey found about 80,000 Coloradans didn't get the drug or alcohol treatment they needed this year. Stigma and cost were the most common reasons, and cost is highlighted in one of the new ads. It features Dr. Leslie Brooks, who heads up addiction medicine at a Larimer County health provider. You can help support your loved ones by asking questions of your health care provider about financial assistance programs like Medicaid and Medicare. Through their research, Liz Owens also learned that people didn't want to see just one face in an ad because that ties addiction to a particular community. People wanted to see a multitude of faces, which is really reflective of the principle that we started with, which is the idea that addiction can happen to anyone and recovery is possible. And that's where Keith Hayes comes in. There's a lot of different ways to find recovery, and you got to find the treatment that is best for you and your family. The 39-year-old heard about Lift the Label last spring. After completing the interview process and learning more details, he was in. I'm so grateful that I did because it is helping a lot of people. I'm literally getting a phone call every day from somebody saying, hey, I've seen you on TV bringing awareness about the stigma of addiction. Hayes has been sober for over four years now and is director of recovery at a recovery high school in Denver. His journey has become an inspiration for others, including Black people who have reached out to him. Do you have any resources that we can use to get me into treatment. I've been able to use my resources and help them get their journey started. So, I mean, that is exactly what we're aiming to do. While Lift the Label urges people to seek help, the state is continuing to expand access to treatment, and the program is still being evaluated. The next step is targeting ads and trainings to medical, behavioral, and law enforcement professionals so they can better treat those with substance use disorder. Stephanie Daniel, KUNC. As we just heard from Stephanie, the Lift the Label program is still being evaluated and other changes could be on the horizon. One of the people who has worked with the state to evaluate the campaign and to propose less stigmatizing changes is Daniel Goldberg, an associate professor with the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus Center for Bioethics and Humanities. Stephanie Daniel spoke with Goldberg about the structural side of stigma and the institutions that are largely responsible for how many Americans view drugs and drug use today. He started by explaining how he got involved with the Lift the Label campaign. 
I study stigma is one of my main areas of expertise. So I sort of am a stigma scholar and I sort of study and teach about it day in and day out. And so one of my colleagues uh, knew what was going on with the Lift the Label campaign and sort of suggested it would be useful for Elizabeth Owens and myself to meet as well as some other people on Lift the Label and see if there's any way I could be of service. Uh, And so that's what happened. Talk about the work you did specifically with Lift the Label. Yeah, the work I did with Lift the Label was really focused on thinking about ways to maximize the impact, the health impact of the campaign, but with a specific focus on sort of thinking about structural stigma. And that's really where my work is positioned. So what do I mean by structural stigma? Um, A lot of, for people who experience stigma, uh, that we tend to experience it in an intersubjective, individualized way. So, you know, I went to see the healthcare professional and healthcare professional stigmatized me. You know, I went to the benefits office and the person behind the desk stigmatized me, right? I went into the workplace and one of my colleagues stigmatized me. So we tend to think of stigma on this individual level. But actually, that's a downstream manifestation of an upstream phenomenon, right? And the work on stigma and the best evaluations we have of stigma are very clear that stigma flows from upstream structures, things like power and oppression. So things like race and class and gender and ability or disability status, you know, these same oppressions really that are driving differences between people are the ones that actually create stigmas that separate in groups from out groups, which is what stigma is basically. And so a lot of my work was thinking about with Lift the Labels, thinking about what can we do with such an excellent campaign like Lift the Label that moves us as close as we can to models of of moving the needle on stigma structurally, changing some of the structures that drive stigma against marginalized and victimized and vulnerable groups. And so that's the sort of work that I was trying to do with Lift the Label. What's a concrete example of how structural stigma can impact somebody? Yeah, absolutely. So um, because stigma is structural, one of the things we'll expect to find is stigma living in structures and institutions with structures and institutions. Well, some of the obvious ones and the ones that I study are our laws and our policies, which deeply stigmatize persons who use drugs or persons who live with substance disorder, substance use disorder. So for example, there are a lot of laws and policies that make it very difficult for people in active recovery to actually get jobs. For example, they'll ask if anyone has had histories of these kinds of things, or more problematically, they'll deny um, an ability for someone to be employed by a state office, for example, if that person is using a scheduled substance, which is a problem because for some people in active recovery, for example, methadone is a scheduled substance, right? So it means that people in active recovery are being barred from actually getting jobs, which is probably not something we want to do from a policy perspective. And that's deeply stigmatizing, right? There are all sorts of laws that regulate where recovery homes or assisted living facilities can be located, right? There's a lot of what's been referred to as nimbyism, not in my backyardism. People like these things. They just don't want them in their neighborhoods, right? Um, And so that is its own form of stigma. It's basically barring persons who are using drugs, persons who live with substance use disorder, persons who are in active recovery from the social spaces that could help them live meaningful, flourishing lives, whether they're using drugs or not. Other examples include the language we use, right? The language we use, language helps to shape the world in which we live, right? And so when we use language that stigmatizes persons who use drugs, Um, we actually help to reinforce 
that stigma, right? And we perpetuate it and we give it life. We make sure that it's going to continue in the future the more we use this kind of language. And so there have been some excellent studies recently which have asked persons who use drugs or persons who live with substance use disorder, what kinds of language is stigmatizing? So one of the things we could do is change our policies, for example, to sort of regulate the use of such language in healthcare settings, for example, um, such that persons who use drugs or live with substance substance use disorder don't have to experience that kind of language every time they come in to for a healthcare visit. When it comes to methadone and other medication assisted treatments, how does the stigma within the medical community, like with healthcare providers, how does that affect someone who has substance use disorder? Well, it starts with the word alone, right? Medically assisted treatment, you know, for people who are on any kind of pharmacotherapy, what other kind is there? It's all medication-assisted treatment, right? Like for a person who lives with type 2 diabetes who may take metformin, that's medically-assisted treatment, right? Like, And that's what stigma is. Stigma is fundamentally a process of marking out groups as different and then judging them as deviant. That's a shorthand conception of stigma. So immediately when we use the term MAT, as far as I'm concerned, and, and I think that there's a movement actually to, to, to change that language itself. It's just sort of nascent. It's just started, I think. But part of it is, is I have a concern and I'm not a clinician. I don't treat persons who use drugs or live with substance use disorder. So it could be that I'm just naive and I'm missing things, but you know, the language concerns me. I mean, why do we begin by marking out a group of people for whom pharmacotherapies are um, a safe and effective intervention and, and, and labeling them, there's the lift the label, right? And labeling them as different on the basis of the fact that they're using pharmacotherapy. I mean, Americans use a lot of pharmaceuticals. Most of us are on medication assisted treatment, to be honest with you. Right. So it's not clear to me why we should mark out persons who use drugs or persons who live with substance use disorder at the outset as somehow different than the rest of us, as far as I'm concerned, who are also um, in all sorts of different kinds of treatment for which we are taking medications. That was KUNC's Stephanie Daniel speaking with Daniel Goldberg, an associate professor with the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus Center for Bioethics and Humanities. You can find a link to Stephanie's reporting and her interview with Goldberg at our website, KUNC.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Earlier this month, Native American Guardians Association, a North Dakota-based group, filed a lawsuit against the state of Colorado over its legislative ban on Native American school mascots. The ban came as a part of Senate Bill 21116, which Governor Polis signed back in June. It gave the 25 or so Colorado schools that currently have Native American mascots about 11 months to remove them or face a monthly fine of $25,000. But the group behind the lawsuit is arguing that this ban is unconstitutional. They have stated that while some American Indian mascots are caricatures that mock their heritage, there are examples of culturally appropriate Native American names and logos that honor tribes and neutralize stereotypes. Here to talk more about the mascot ban, the lawsuit, and the implications of all of it is Matthew Campbell. Matthew is a staff attorney at the Native American Rights Fund. Matthew, thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Henry, and thank you for having me. So to start, can you tell us more about this ban on Native American school mascots, maybe some of the the background on the law or the context that you think is helpful to know? Yes, thanks, Henry. Um, This law is the culmination of several years of efforts. Um, An earlier iteration of this bill was introduced in uh, 2015 that did not pass. 
And as a result of that, uh, the governor at the time created a commission in Colorado to study this issue and how it plays out in Colorado schools and the impact it has on children and uh, native people in our school districts in Colorado. And the commission came out with uh, recommendations that school districts should uh, remove these derogatory mascots and images from their uh, schools because it has a very harmful impact to native and non-native students. And so I think as a result of that report, uh, we see we have now seen this further legislation and it does just that, uh, seeks to remove those mascots and those harmful images. And how have schools reacted? It's been a few months now, but any word on whether or not some are in the process of change or now maybe some are waiting to see how this legal challenge shakes out? Yeah, thanks, Henry. I know that schools have, uh, since the Colorado Commission's report came out, have been taking on the process to remove their uh, mascots and images, and some have not. And so I think this will be a great impetus for schools to uh, begin that process to remove their mascots. Well, I I think you briefly touched on this, but I know that you've done quite a bit of research into the impacts of Native American mascots on children. Can you tell us more about your research and and what you found? Yeah, I think a big thing that is missed in this discussion oftentimes is, um, you know, people talk about how it's offensive and and, um, racist, but a big piece that's missing is the harms that these images and mascots have on students. The American Psychological Association has found that these derogatory representations create hostile learning environments for American Indian students and harm not just Native students, but also non-Native students. And I think we have seen, uh, it's been pretty well documented throughout the last 10 years, the hostile learning environments that have come about through the use of these types of mascots. Just a few years ago, students in California that had mascots like this, native students were called wagon burners. They were called savages and dirty Indians at various events throughout the school year. And we've seen examples like that throughout the country where hostile learning environments uh, arise from the use of these types of mascots. And so what's really missing in the debate and the discussion is just the harms that arise from the use of these images. And I think that's something that's really important that we need to think about going forward, whether or not our governmental entities should be creating these hostile environments. So let's move over to this lawsuit. Um, You know, who are the plaintiffs and what is their argument? Sure thing. The, The plaintiffs, like you mentioned, are the Native American Guardians Association and several individuals in Colorado. And they're arguing that the, uh, the bill, the Colorado bill, violates the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause and the First Amendment right to petition under the Free Speech Clause, as well as Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. Essentially, they're arguing that the law discriminates against Native Americans um, and they are harmed because it uh, prohibits them from having future conversations about uh, appropriate, culturally appropriate logos, it prohibits them from educating folks about this and using these images in a positive way. And is there, I mean, it's an interesting argument. Uh, is there precedence for a lawsuit like theirs? Have we seen anything like this before? 
you know, I'm not sure that I've seen any type of lawsuits like this before. And I think it's interesting um, because I think the bill, as it's been designed, really allows for the creation of conversations to be had. It allows for uh, culturally appropriate um, images to be utilized. Um, you know, school districts can enter into agreements with federally recognized Indian tribes to develop culturally appropriate uh, images that they can utilize for their school districts. The bill also contemplates that tribes, Native American tribes and school districts can then develop curriculum to better educate the students in the community about the history and the Native American affairs. Um, so I think the bill really did contemplate allowing for this type of education, allowing for these conversations to be had allowing for tribal nations to enter into these agreements in a culturally appropriate way as we see all across the nation. And I think it's worth pointing out that the two tribal nations in the state of Colorado, the Southern Ute Indian tribe and the Ute Mountain Ute tribe were both at the signing of the bill uh, earlier this year and supportive of it. We are speaking with Matthew Campbell, staff attorney at the Native American Rights Fund. Matthew, you mentioned some of those agreements uh, briefly, and I'm wondering if you could tell me more about how those agreements are made. I mean, do schools sort of reach out and negotiate these? How do those conversations happen? Sure. I think there are several avenues that um, school districts can undertake to enter into such agreements. You know, the Arapaho School District already has an agreement in place, and so they'd be exempt for this. And I think there are other school districts in Colorado that already have such agreements in place. And so there are models out there already. The Colorado Commission of Indian Affairs is certainly in a position to help uh, develop a relationship between a school district and a federally recognized Indian tribe so that those school districts can then um, create those agreements. I think the school districts themselves can also reach out directly to the leadership of federally recognized tribes in order to develop those agreements and relationships as well. The Bureau of the Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs has on its list a, a, a list of all the federally recognized tribes in the United States, as well as contact information for the tribal leaders of those tribes. And so I think that's another location that schools can also look to uh, to reach out to tribal leaders and develop those relationships. Well, um, obviously it's tough to know where a lawsuit will go, but I'm wondering if you or others at uh, NARF have thought about this lawsuit and maybe the implications or the consequences of what could be ahead with it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, Henry. I, you know, the Native American Rights Fund has supported an earlier iteration of this bill, and I think we support this current bill um, given the hostile environment that these types of mascots and images create for students across the country, the hostile environments we have seen. And I think this bill really aims at school districts and governmental entities. It's not aimed at curbing the free speech or rights of individual people. It's really looking at eradicating those hostile learning environments and allowing for the creation of agreements between school districts and tribes. And so I, we hope that uh, this um, bill stands and that tribes are allowed to create these educational environments and curriculums with these school districts in Colorado 
so that we can really educate students and the public about the history of Native American people. Well, of course, this is an issue not just unfolding here in Colorado, but or really just with schools, but um, even national sports teams. Um, I'm wondering, Matthew, if you think we'll see the day where Native American mascots are only used with explicit agreements in place? And if so, what do you think it would take for us to get there? Well, I certainly hope that's the day that comes. Um, And I think it's worth noting that, you know, that I think there is a big difference between a private company that has uh, a Native American mascot, such as the Washington football team used to have, and a governmental entity like a public school district that um, utilizes tax dollars to educate our students. I think there's just quite a big difference between those two things. And and when you're creating a hostile work environment and it's the governmental entity that's doing that, um, we should really take a hard look at that and make sure that our students are put in the best position they are able to be in to succeed. And so um, I think this bill is a great model that can be utilized uh, by other states across the country um, that can really create this conversation that can foster relationships between federally recognized tribes and school districts and other public entities. And um, we can come to a day where these are, there are culturally appropriate items that are utilized in these um, spaces. Matthew Campbell is a staff attorney at the Native American Rights Fund. Matthew, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you, Henry. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we listen back to a series of stories exploring the history of racist sundown towns in the American West. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.